hear me now, um, Zoomers? Okay, I'm sorry, we have some tech issues, so we've had to kill um, camera to you at the moment, and we are using only my laptop microphone. People here, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to uh, cope with me trying to project and look around. Um, we've, we've had a few laptop issues and they're not behaving. So welcome to Organised Chaos, wherever you are. This morning's service will include communion and everybody is very welcome to receive the bread and wine if you, if you want to. If you prefer not to, that's fine. Just allow the things to go past you and don't feel at all embarrassed. This is the second of our Lent series of Jesus in Conversation. And hopefully, if the tech holds up, we will hear um, Jeff reading scripture, Esan leading the Lord's Prayer, and shortly Janet will light our candle. I'm conscious the sound levels on site may not be great for those because we are basically running off my laptop. Um, we'll do our best. Just a reminder that next week is our away day at Cathcart Baptist. If you're planning to come to that, whether on site or online, please do drop me a quick email with names because that's really helpful in our final preparation uh, arrangements. According to the people who completed the questionnaire, there are more people coming than have given me names. So I think there's a few people not quite got round to it yet. So if you could do that, please, that would be greatly appreciated. You will have seen uh, my email with good news that Alan is getting home. Unfortunately, it's taking a bit longer than I hoped to get everything into place, but he does hope to get home on Monday. Uh, next Sunday, it I will be leading worship, hopefully in a slightly less um, freaked out mode. But we're going to hand over now to Janet to light our candle. So thank you, Janet. As we gather for worship, let us join together to become the body of Christ. Christ is the light that lights our way. May we glimpse Christ's light this day.
And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray. Thank you, God of springtime, for the signs of new and renewed life that we can see all around us. After the rest of winter, trees bud and break into leaf. Snowdrops, crocuses and da daffodils bring colour to parks, gardens and verges. Birds gather twigs to build their nests and countless small creatures emerge from hibernation. The daylight hours steadily increase day by day. Thank you, God of Sunday, for another opportunity to gather together with our siblings in Christ. For the greeting of friends and the welcoming of visitors. For familiar words and music. And for songs and ideas that are previously unknown. For the mystery of prayer and the riches of tradition. For ideas to ponder and people to love. Thank you, God of all creation, for your silent, gentle presence around us, within us, before us, and behind us, during this time of worship, and in the days to come. Amen. We are invited to join together the Lord's Prayer in our own preferred language and form. ای پدر ما که در نام تو مقدس باد ملکوت تو بیاید اراده تو چنان که در آسمان است بر زمین نیز کرده شود نان کفاف ما را امروز به ما بده و گناهان ما را ببخش چنان که ما نیز آنان که بر ما گناه کردن را میبخشیم و ما را در آزمایش میابر بلکه از شریر رهاییده زیرا ملکوت قدرت و جلال از آن توست تا ابد Amen.
So I was going to use a PowerPoint at this point, uh, but it seems to just be causing even more confusion with the tech than ever this morning. So I'm going to manage without. Riddles, puzzles, conundrums. Just a little bit of fun to start off with. Well, at least if you like that sort of thing. So, who is the smallest person in the Bible? Esther. David? <laughs> That's a good, good, good go. Um, this is not a serious question. This is a, a, a jokey question. Smallest person, sorry? So, well, Zacchaeus possibly is the smallest real, if it was doing it strictly. Um, Nehemiah, Maya, yeah, Nehemiah. Maya. Thank you, Neil. And even smaller than Nehemiah is Bildad, the shoe height. Okay, it's pretty rubbish. Okay, it's going to be double your hard work this morning, isn't it? Okay, another jokey question: Where is Solomon? The where was Solomon's temple? Yeah, on his forehead, yeah. <laughs> Lastly, they're really bad. They're really bad and they get worse. How does Moses make tea? With milk and honey? That would be a good answer, Katrina. <laughs> Katrina said with milk and honey. That's not the one on the website I looked at. Esther, fire. That would be a good way to do it. That would be a sensible way to do it. The answer is he brews it. Uh, Hebrews. Told you, they're really, really bad. Okay, this is a riddle that really is in the Bible. Some of you may know it, some of you may not. And I haven't actually printed it off, so it's just as well I can remember it. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Does anybody remember that one? Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. It is on the Tate and Lyle golden syrup tin, and I was going to show you a picture of the Tate and Lyle golden syrup tin. Um, Esther, uh, it's a good guess, but it's not the one. It was a, it was it was a trick question asked by Samson to try and trick people. So honey is the something sweet. That's right. So there's something sweet and. Sorry? Beast. It was a beast. Do you know what kind of a beast? Well, you did very well, Addy. I'm very impressed. That was the carcass of a lion. That's right. The honey that came out of the, 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 the carcass of the lion. Okay. Well, that didn't really work very well. It's just the, the way of today is nothing is going to work, but that is fine. But sometimes the Bible is tricky to understand and it can feel like it's a load of riddles. That's what I swear I was trying to go with this. Um, hasn't quite worked, but never mind. Um, but it can be a bit of fun sometimes to share some puzzles. And the truth is, I think we've seen it here, often children are more willing to have a go at asking the questions or answering the questions than the grown-ups because we get a bit scared of, of sounding really silly. Hopefully we can sing again um, and the youngsters are going to go along to the terrace um, to continue their own way. So says Jesus, come and gather round, Katrina.
listen for the word of God from John chapter 3. There was a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and a Jewish leader. One night he went to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that God has sent you to teach us. You could not work these miracles unless God were with you. Jesus replied, I tell you for certain that you must be born from above before you can see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, how can a grown man ever be born a second time? Jesus answered, I'll tell you for certain that before you can get into God's kingdom, you must be born not only by water, but by the spirit. Humans give life to their children. Yet only God's spirit can change you into a child of God. Don't be surprised when I say that you must be born from above. Only God's spirit gives new life. The spirit is like the wind that blows wherever it wants to. You can hear the wind, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, How can you be a teacher of Israel and not know these things? I tell you for certain, we know that what we are talking about because we have seen it ourselves. But none of you will accept what we say. If you don't believe when I talk to you about things on earth, how can you possibly believe if I talk to you about things in heaven? No one has gone up to heaven except the Son of Man, who came down from there. And the Son of Man must be lifted up, just as the metal snake was lifted up by Moses in the desert. Then everyone who has faith in the Son of Man will have eternal life. God loved the people of this world so much that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. He sent him to save it. I can have been no more than seven years old. I was handed an old black Bible, opened already at the right page, and with a blend of excitement and pride and terror, I stepped into the pulpit. 
standing almost on tiptoe so that I could just about see over the top and remembering what I'd been taught about projecting, I read what I now know to be some of the most famous and most quoted words of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I've got vague memories of practising those words, which I still find tricky to stay in King James Version English. And looking back, I'm pretty sure I hadn't got a clue what I was reading. All I knew was that this was scripture and it was an honour to be chosen to read it. More than half a century later, I have studied these words. I've studied the context in which they're set. I've read them devotionally in Sunday school and in church. I've read them critically in biblical studies classes. I've read commentaries that emphasise a specific meaning of this word or that phrase. And sometimes I wonder if I'm actually any further on than I was as a child. These are beautiful words set in an enigmatic encounter between a northern rabbi called Jesus and a trained religious leader called Nicodemus. And what on earth does it all mean? A few years ago, someone from this church, as it happens, asked me if I had read the whole Bible. Well, the answer to that is yes, but not all in one go, and not very thoroughly. And a very long time ago, when in my 20s, I set myself the challenge to do so. Oh, they said, well, well you must know it all then. You must know what every word of it means after all. You're a minister. You know these things. Well, apart from being horrified, I was puzzled. Because, of course, I don't know the whole Bible by heart. And most of it I don't even remember reading. And even the bits I think I do know still have the possibility of surprising me when I read them again. But to be fair that person had a valid point. Religious leaders are meant to know stuff. Even if in the UK at least we are not legally employed, we are office holders, we are paid to devote ourselves, amongst other things, to studying the scriptures and trying to work out what it all means. It can be pretty unnerving when you get asked a question and you'd have no idea how to answer it. I have to say, I've spent the best part of quarter of a century saying I don't know, and nobody's sacked me for it yet. But there is this kind of expectation, at least on ourselves, that we should know the answers. The truth is, religious leaders whether they're 21st century Baptist ministers or 1st century Jewish rabbis are just human. We don't know the Bible by heart. 
We don't have all the answers. And often, if we're honest, we have lots and lots of questions that we'd love to find answers to and we just can't. And that's very much the context of today's story. When a man called Nicodemus had a late night conversation with Jesus. So what do we know about Nicodemus? Firstly, we are told he is a Pharisee, so very well educated, very highly respected, exactly the kind of person you'd go to if you had a question about faith or practice. Even more than that, he's described as a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, and clearly he's influential. If we read further into John's Gospel, we would hear that he challenged other members of that ruling council when they were trying to trap Jesus. He said, you can't condemn a person without interviewing them first. And then later on again, along with Joseph of Arimathea, he is present at the burial of Jesus, bringing with him an enormous amount of anointing spices. So it seems to me that Nicodemus was an earnest man, an intelligent man. He knew about the responsibilities and power that came with his status. I think I would even go so far as to say he was a good man, a man who wanted to do the right thing, to be fair and even handed. If you read commentaries and listen to preachers, an awful lot of energy is spent trying to work out why he went to see Jesus at night. Was he afraid that other religious leaders would see him? Was he worried that ordinary people would see him and, well, I've got snitch, clipe, dob him in to the authorities? Does it matter? I don't think it really does. Maybe, and this would be my preferred explanation, at least at this point in time, it was just an opportunity that he had when he could go and see Jesus uninterrupted. And he would be able to ask the questions he really wanted to ask. And the conversation begins with what seems a perfectly straightforward statement of what Nicodemus has seen and how he understands it. Politely addressing Jesus as rabbi, he observes that in order to perform the signs that have been witnessed, Jesus must be from God. I don't know what he thought Jesus might say in response to that, but I very much doubt it was what happened next. Many years ago, I came across a book by somebody called Tom Thatcher called Jesus the Riddler. And it explores the idea that many of the parables Jesus told could be understood as riddles. That was kind of why I started off with some riddles, but hey, I'm not very good at it. According to Tom Thatcher, there are four criteria you can use to say this looks like it's a riddle. First, that the gospel writer states or suggests that what is being said is a riddle. Second, the context is what might be understood as a riddling session, a group of people or two people who are choosing to engage in this way. Thirdly, that people are confused. 
And lastly, that it's calculated to challenge normal thinking. Now, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus doesn't quite fit all of those, but it certainly has some of those features. So does it mean then that Jesus isn't really taking Nicodemus seriously? He's just playing with him. Well, no, absolutely not. Because actually in their culture, and there's lots of historical evidence to support this, using riddles to explore ideas was quite common practice. So I want to suggest that Jesus, in replying to Nicodemus, is using the language of a riddle. And certainly, Nicodemus is confused. What Jesus says to him doesn't make sense, at least not literally. And it doesn't get any better when Jesus starts to talk about physical birth and spiritual birth and uses the image of wind to describe the action of God's spirit. I actually feel sorry for Nicodemus. Jesus starts on this stuff about being born from above again. Boy, does a lot of energy get expended on trying to work out what that actually means. And he asks a straightforward question of Jesus. How, how can it this be? How can I be born again? How can this happen? And Jesus basically says to him, well, you're the trained theologian. You don't understand it. And off he goes again. More riddles. Something about Moses lifting up the metal snake in the desert to save the people from a deadly plague, part of their shared story. And how the son of man, whoever that was, was going to be lifted up, whatever that meant, to grant people eternal life. Goodness me, what on earth did any of that mean? And of course, it doesn't get resolved. And I imagine Nicodemus going back out into the night with his head spinning. This wasn't what he came for. He'd come for answers and all he got were riddles. What he thought he knew and understood is challenged. And there is so much more to think about, to puzzle over, so many questions, so much more than just learning what you've always learned and accepting what you've always been told. I wonder if any of that resonates. I wonder if we find that when we ask our questions about faith, about the meaning of life, about ethics or politics, all that happens is there are more and more puzzles, more and more questions and more and more strange conundrums. Well, here's a conundrum for you. If you read John chapter three, where does Jesus speaking stop? And where does the author's commentary start? Because depending which translation of the Bible you use, which version, you'll find that different decisions are made by the translators on where to end the words they attribute to Jesus and resume the commentary or reflection by the writer. In some translations, and I have to say this can even vary between different editions of the same translation, because I got out one of my Bibles 
paper Bible, looked at it, then looked at it online and discovered they've changed where they decide this happens. In some translations, they say it's the end of verse 15. The son of man being lifted up is where it stops. In other translations, it says it's verse 21, which goes even beyond what we heard this morning. You see, ancient writing doesn't have quotation marks and commas and semicolons on things in it. You have to make a choice when you translate it where to put the punctuation. So all you can do is make your best guess, hopefully with a bit of guidance from the Holy Spirit, and live with the resultant ambiguity. And then the lectionary people decide to cut the thing somewhere else in the middle of that. So we've got verses 16 and 17, which some people, some people think that Jesus said, and some people think the writer of the gospel added. So we get a problem there, another puzzle, another conundrum. So here is my suggestion. I'm kind of cast in the role of Nicodemus. I'm the one who's meant to know the answers. He actually has to live with the questions and the uncertainty and the confusion. I think the writer allows us to eavesdrop on a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And in doing so, we discover just how enigmatic Jesus is, how he speaks in riddles, how he challenges the understandings and the thoughts of those who try to engage seriously with him. All too often, we end up feeling like Nicodemus. We came to Jesus or to the minister or whoever it is with a straightforward question, and then we discover there is no straightforward answer. We have to go away with our minds still whirling as we try to make sense of it. But I also think that because the gospel writer knows how this feels and is doing their best to share their understanding of the story of Jesus, the verses 16 and 17 could be understood as them trying to summarise the key points of the message. And so we come back right full circle to where I began and my seven-year-old self entrusted to read those words of John 3, 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I've spent more than half a century cherishing those words, trying to understand them, revising what I think they say in the light of learning and experience and questions and everything else that goes on. And I believe the Holy Spirit is in there somewhere. In his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus spoke of God's spirit being like the wind. It can also be, that word can also be translated as breath. The life-giving breath, the life-giving wind, if you like. 
And so as we continue to mull over the riddles that Jesus speaks, we ask God to breathe on us the breath of life. And so we're going to sing, breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life and you. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. The popular fame tells us it's better to light the candles and curse the darkness. With those thoughts in mind, let us wait. We light the candle for our world. We light the candle for our world where the darkness of violence, corruption, Greed and self-interest feels very impressive. We name before God situations international, national and local that we have read or heard about in the news this week. We light a candle for the work of BMS World Mission and for mission and relief agencies worldwide. As BMS draw our attention to creation stewardship, we pray for projects in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and for headquarters staff in the UK seeking to make ethical environmental choices. As a registered fair trade church, this fair trade fortnight, we pray for all farmers and growers whose livelihoods depend on the decision of international corporations, supermarket chains, and ordinary buyers. We light a candle for the work of the Baptist Union of Scotland and for other churches and denominations. 
we name before God. Campbelltown Community Church, Cannon Mills Baptist Church, and Carnoustie Baptist Church. We pray for Carly Morris in her work as an admin assistant for the Baptist Union. We pray for our siblings in other traditions as they seek to speak and be good news. We light a candle for our own church community, a diverse and beautiful band of people trying to follow Jesus in the puzzling world of which we are part. We name before God, Yang Yang, Edith and Tom, Bethany, Emma, Drew and Killian, Jane S, Wendy, Steve C, Neil, Anita and Bonnie, Dr. Beth, Mary, Janet and Roger. We bring to God our private prayers, the questions that keep us awake at night, the puzzles that leave us confused, the flickering embers of hope that need to be found in the place. God who said, let there be light, accept these prayers, and empower us to be as candles defying the darkness. For we pray in the name of Jesus, the light of the world. Amen. Drawn to something he could not explain. 
Centuries later, we gather in broad daylight to share and participate in something we cannot adequately explain. Drawn by a mystery that defies understanding, continuing a tradition begun by Jesus. This we call the Lord's Table. Yet it looks pretty much like any table. And this bread and these cups of juice we call wine. So ordinary. And yet to us and to countless others, this is something special. A sign, a symbol, a memory, a remembering of Christ. And so we gather, some in faith and some in doubt, some with confidence and some out of curiosity, some from habit, some from desire. All of us seeking something, but not one of us able to express what that is. So let us hear again the old familiar story passed down through the centuries. The curious conundrum of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, do you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? Let us pray. God of mystery, if we are honest, we cannot begin to make sense of what it is we're doing in this act. It is, in the true sense of the word, an enigma. And the words are like riddles causing us to wonder once again what it might all mean. So we thank you for the bread and wine, ordinary everyday stuff of this world. We thank you for all they represent about Jesus, about promise, about new life and about recreation. And more than any of that, we thank you that just as we are, you welcome us to share together. Amen. Jesus took the bread, broke it, and shared it. And we are invited to share bread together and to remember.
when they had eaten, Jesus took the cup of wine and said, this feels the new covenant between God and all creation. When you drink this, remember me. We will, as is good old-fashioned Baptist custom, retain the glasses to drink together. On site, online, even on the recording, we join together as one body as we drink and remember. And as we remember, we hear again those familiar words of hope and promise. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Amen. Amen.